because sometimes I stand up here with a guitar and I discover it's like my fingers don't work. Today's one of those days. So, um, God be praised no matter how the guitar sounds, right? Hey, this has been a really difficult week. Really difficult. For me personally, and the, the roadblock of education uh, hit me pretty hard, and I just want to say I thank God for you all. And the way that you have uh, borne the burden with me, and you have prayed for me and encouraged me every step of the way, and especially in this week, and we thank God, Aaron and I thank God for you. We thank God that there is a, a way forward, and as much as it hurts to say yes to pushing on in the PhD work, uh, we're going to do it. And so it'll be at least another three months of revising and resubmitting, and uh, then we'll go through the process again. So thank you for your support in that. Uh, there is a, a bit of good news this morning. We have a short preaching text, <laughs> Jeremiah 47. And so I want to invite you to go there. And today's passage, according to one commentator, he said today's passage is kind of like a satellite from the previous one. So you recall we talked about the judgment of God against the Egyptians at the end of Jeremiah. Now we're coming to all these words that are being spoken to the nations so last week it was a word for the nations, Egypt. This week it's a word for the nations, Philistia. And so the, the satellite being a lot of the same ideas are repackaged to Philistia, but compact. And I want to give us some hopefully good applications from today's text. Uh, even though we're not Philistines, uh, even though uh, we are not now uh, pagans, uh, even though we are not uh, in the line of people that have rejected and rejected, hopefully not. Maybe, maybe you are this morning one who has not come to that uh, full assurance of faith in Jesus Christ, and you need to hear the word today as a deep, deep warning. Warning for you. But those of you who know Jesus, who have experienced the grace of God and salvation, you can look on today's text and see how you once were. And you can also use today's text to remind yourself how much God hates sin and idolatry. And your fight now as a believer is to keep these things out of your life. So it's a bit of a satellite. You understand a satellite takes information, broadcasts it somewhere else. What's happening here, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is leading Babylon to take over these places that uh, they wish to take over. And we've already studied the fact that they later would go into Judah, take over Jerusalem. They would bring all the people of God into exile. And now... Uh, we're going backwards a little bit again. You remember the, one of the texts in uh, chapter 46 was about an event that happened to Egypt where Carchemish, a, a city in Egypt, was taken. A military city was taken. It was about 605-ish B.C. 
So today's text to Philistia is set in about the same time frame. So we can group this conquest in with that conquest of Egypt at Carchemish. This all falls at the end of Josiah's reign, as you'll read here in a moment in verse 1. Before we read the text, though, I want to remind you of a few things. There is great comfort for the people of God, and, and you hopefully will experience some of that comfort today. There's great comfort for the people of God in knowing that God will avenge the enemies of his people. Everything that opposes him, everything that opposes his people, ultimately will get the justice of God dealt out to them. And that should cause us to rejoice. While we grieve at judgment, we rejoice in the good justice of God. You know something about the Philistines? They've been nagging the people of God. They've been a thorn in the side of the people of God for most of their existence now. And so now when believers, true believers are hearing these words that Jeremiah is speaking against the nations, there is a measure of comfort as God takes vengeance on them. Now, in many places, as we've talked about throughout the book of Jeremiah over and over and over again, God intends to teach the world a lesson by how he deals with his own people. He addresses his own people's sin. He disciplines his own people, and the nations look on, and if they understand it rightly, then they understand that the God of Israel cares about what they do. He cares about who they are, how they act in the world. He intends to show the world that he's serious about holiness, so serious that he's even willing to send his own son to make it known, thus saving people not just from the tribes of Israel, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In these chapters, as we come to the conclusion of Jeremiah, the role is swapped, however. The Lord announces in the hearing of his people judgment upon the nations in part to remind his people that he is serious about not only his holiness, but their holiness as well. So to the one who is still under the condemnation of sin, today's text ought to strike terror in your very soul. But to the true believer, it ought to strike terror. Fear in your heart and mind about any and every compromise of faith, compromise of practice that you find in your life. And I'm persuaded that this is the primary purpose of the chapter as it relates to God's people because of the long, difficult relationship between Philistia and Israel. This relationship is not even really mentioned. This is not primarily vengeance. It's simply straightforward judgment against a people who hate God. I want you to follow along with me, Jeremiah 47. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are rising out of the north, shall come an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that, that fills it. The city and those who dwell in it, men shall cry out, and every inhabitant of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of his stallions 
at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of their wheels. The fathers look not back to their children, so feeble are their hands. Because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has perished. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge? Against Ashkelon and against the seashore, he has appointed it. Join me in prayer. Father, we again need your help to understand and apply your word correctly. The Spirit, do these things for us. Jesus, be glorious in our sight. Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A word for the nations, Philistia. The theme today, I deleted a word from last week. Amid God's announcements of worldwide judgment, redemption echoes. If you recall last week, we said redemption echoes loudly. This week, I would say redemption echoes very faintly to Philistia. You have to work to find the redemption of God in the words to Felicia. Someone texted me this week and said, I'm not sure how you're going to deal with Jeremiah 47. Like, how, how can you preach that? There's nothing good there. But here we are. We're not going to skip it because it's tough. We want to dig in today. Hopefully the Lord will help. Redemption echoes very faintly, but it echoes. I want to show you this morning basically two lessons. God's judgment against unbelievers teaches his people two lessons. Two lessons this morning. First off, verses 2 through 4, the wages of the wicked way. The wages of the wicked way. And I got W's for you today. The wages of the wicked way, verses 2 through 4. You saw here the Philistines. I told you the Philistines, longtime enemies of God, enemies of God's people. You remember the days of King Saul, King David. You remember the, uh, the battle, the big battle for David, right? Goliath, a Philistine. They were always against the people of God. And you recall how in those days, I believe it's, uh, it's the words of David in a song in 2 Samuel, he's lamenting the loss of Saul and Jonathan, and the words he sings are basically, Oh my, how the mighty have fallen. Saul and Jonathan fallen at the hands of the Philistines. He actually prays there. He says, or he sings and prays. He says, I don't want the Philistines to hear of this. Because he doesn't want them to know that he is weakened by this. But what we find in our text today is those mighty men or once so-called mighty men that stood against Saul and Jonathan and David, those mighty men now 
they have fallen. At this point in our, in our history, the people of Philistia have become basically nothing. They have lost their military power. They are pawns for other kings, other nations. They're simply in the way of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. They may look like something still. They may still tell their stories, but their, their status is not what it once was. They were powerful and they became nothing. They went from being a political and military force to being simply a nation in the way of greater kings. We look at these nations, we must quickly recognize, as Paul says, as I mentioned earlier, such were some of you. Such were some of you. We read the text and we're like, yeah, they're wicked, but I'm not wicked. They deserve judgment, but I don't deserve that judgment. You know what Paul says? You were one of these folks. But you know what happened? 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you were in that state, in that broken state, in that God-hating state, that idolatrous state, that sinful state. You were, he says, washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. And so when we look at this text, we ought to see that Philistine is right here still and we're to fight it. We see how this wicked way lurks in us and that is our fallen sinful nature and our fight is a fight of real holiness under the lordship of Christ. I remember as a kid, I, I kept all my foods separate. Y'all ever do that? Y'all probably did when you were a kid, right? You know, there's some meals today that I, I want. I want one of those divider plates because I don't want the juices to mix. We're, we're approaching Thanksgiving season, and, and as, a, as an adult, I fully embrace the concept of like it's all going to the same place anyway. And so you look at my Thanksgiving plate, it's more about making fewer trips to the table to get it. So I just want to get as much as I can. So I'm piling stuff on top of other stuff and all of it's sort of running together. But you know, as, as kids, you often separate your food. And if it's a Thanksgiving meal and mom is making you eat the greens, then you don't want that green juice rolling into your turkey and dressing, right? It's going to contaminate it. A lot of times we, we don't realize that the things of the world, the things of the world that we have given place in our life, they bleed over. They affect us. They diminish our worship they diminish our friendships. They diminish our faith. And we live in a time, we live in a society where it seems that Christians are totally fine with the things of the world running over and compromising their Christian walk. A lot of this stuff is, is, is freedom stuff. A lot of this stuff is, is your freedom, okay? We have this freedom. God gave us this, and we turn it into something perverse. 
So it's not like we're walking into each other's homes and we're like, oh, you need to take that idol down off your shelf. No, it's, it's, not that, it's not that obvious. No, we take the things that God has blessed us with and we turn them into ways to dishonor him. But you know, some just grow comfortable and lax when it comes to holiness. Worldliness creeps over and compromises who they are. God is serious, however, in his word when he tells us, do not give a place to those worldly things in your life. I think there are two characteristics of the wicked way here I want to point out. Two that I think are pretty clear from Jeremiah's prophecy. First off, there is weakness where strength is needed. There is weakness where strength is needed. You look at the end of verse 2 and end of verse 3. Men shall cry out. Every inhabitant of the land shall wail. The noise of the stamping of the hooves of the stallions, the rushing of his chariots, the rumbling of the wheels. And get this, the fathers look not back to their children so feeble are their hands. They are weak. There's weakness where strength is needed. Bregman says here that there is a reason that men are mentioned in reference to their children. And I don't want to overlook it. Here's what Jeremiah is saying. The judgment will be so harsh that they will abandon their children in fear. They literally will be running from the judgment and they won't even look back out of concern for their children's lives. John Calvin says here, when a father has children, he would willingly undergo 10 deaths if necessary in order to save their life. But when men forget that they are parents, it is a proof of the greatest grief. This is how bad it's going to be. Now, there is a word for us men, especially those of us who are husbands and fathers. And I'll tell you that the the text already hit me and I'm still dealing with it. And so I'm trying not to say these words in my father voice or my preacher voice. Of course, you're glad to run into harm's way in order to make sure your children survive. But might there be a hint of Philistine wicked weakness in us? The Philistines are no longer powerful. They may have appeared powerful in past days. They may have appeared to be stable and strong, but they were always headed toward destruction. We must be careful not to appear strong to take on the mantle of provider, to portray that we are stable when, if we're honest, we measure those things on a worldly scale. We've got to move past the foolishness that manliness is founded upon those things. A man in the church can look this way all while watching his children walk the way of destruction. 
A man can appear strong but can't talk to his children about Jesus. That's no man. That's weakness. A man can look stable while turning his children's hearts towards the worship of success, money, possessions. That's no man. That's weakness. Can make a paycheck, but can't make a disciple. Can throw around some weight, throw around something big. But you can't Bible your children. Can, can break a horse, right? I don't know how to break a horse. There's some men, they're proud of that. But they can't break the habits of sin. Can turn a wrench, but can't train children in the way of the Lord. Can grill some meat, but can't gather with the church. That's not a man. That's not a man. That's weakness. A brother sent me some recently, a sermon clip, and I loved how he said it. In the conclusion of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he tells them, he says, act like men. There's a reason for that. And he didn't list all these things that we typically associate with manliness. He listed the things that look like Jesus. Bregman says here, we need to redefine. We need to redefine what a man is. According to what the Bible says, redefine nobility, leadership. Not according to the world, but according to scripture, we need true strength, not weakness. And dads, husbands, young men, look, it will be better to own our failures now, to confess and repent, rather than committing whole families to the fiery judgment of God. Weakness where strength is needed. Uh, secondly, separation where restoration is needed. He says right here, verse 4, because of the day. You remember when we read the day, we need to think of two things. Initially, how this plays out in Philistia, and in the future, how this plays out at the return of Christ. Because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains, for the Lord is destroying the Philistines, a remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. To cut off. Through this judgment, the Lord is cutting off the very things they need for survival. They were dependent on Tyre and Sidon. He's cutting them off from the things that they depended on, and these were the very things that he provided for their existence. I want y'all to get that. It's not like God just sort of put resources out there and said, all right, y'all go fend for yourselves and sustain yourselves. Do you know why Philistia lasted as long as it did? 
God's mercy. He sustained every step that they took by his mercy, by his grace. Hopefully, as we see from the whole story of scripture, that they would see his goodness and repent and believe, but they did not. It says no helper remains. Instead of seeing their survival all these years as a measure of God's mercy, they believed they were strong on their own accord. And when it came down to it, they would not last You know what's crazy? You remember the account where they saw their God, Dagon, fall. You know the story. They stole the Ark of the Covenant. They carried it to their land and placed it near their God. And the next day, their God had fallen. They put him back up and he fell again. His hands were broken off. His head was broken off. Do you see that God had showed them? He showed them, your God, your so-called God, your statue is weak. He is nothing. Ultimately, that weakness was shown in their being separated from the goodness of God and the blessing of God. It was separation then, and it is separation future. For the unbeliever, this is the terror. Separation from God is no laughing matter. Separation from God is nothing to put off to tomorrow. Separation from God means that God has no obligation to even hear your prayer. He has not committed himself to you. He has not committed himself to give you so many days that you may eventually, one day, if you feel like it, repent and believe on Jesus. He can take your life at any point, and this is why he calls you to repentance now. Separation from God. In reality, when we speak of hell, being separated from God is more specifically separated from all the good things about him. Because here's one thing you will know very well about God in hell. His unending wrath. Cut off. There's going to be a day for the unbeliever that does not repent, a day when you are completely cut off forever from the goodness of God. A believer, when we attach ourselves to our own strength, when we attach ourselves to the things that sustain us, we grow distant from the sustainer. We better hope that when he cuts those things off, we are restored to him through repentance. You know, there are some times, occasionally, when I know of a, of a saint's life and maybe even sin in their life, you know what I pray? I pray, God, would you cut off whatever it is that enables their sin? Cut it off. Make them grieve over that loss, but let that grief turn into repentance. separation where restoration is needed let's keep going second second lesson so our first lesson was the wages of the wicked way the second lesson is the wonder of God's word God's sword working and so you immediately understand the interpretation that I am pushing you to right here that's not s word it's not a typo It's the wonder of God's sword, God's word, 
working. I'm going to read these verses again. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has perished. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard. Rest and be still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it a charge? Against Ashkelon and against the seashore, he has appointed it. There's one reason that I think that this is a lesson for the people of God. Because as we read from Ezekiel earlier, very, very similar language is used by God to speak to his own people. So I think we get the lesson here. What's interesting is this is being said to Philistia here. Ezekiel is on his way on the scene. And he's going to be proclaiming those very same things to the people who are wayward. God's people who have walked the other way. It'll be clear from these few verses, five through seven, the sword is God's, not Nebuchadnezzar. Again, God has not just set Nebuchadnezzar loose and sort of do what you wish. No, God is orchestrating the judgment that he intends to happen in the world by the hands of a pagan. Because he's a sovereign God and he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> That ought to be terrifying and comforting for you. The Lord is behind this. The Lord is behind the sword. You remember where that sword came from? We talked about it last week. Revelation 19.10. There's a, a sharp sword, a two-edged sword that proceeds from the Lord Jesus' mouth. This is why we can say that the sword of the Lord is the word of the Lord. I want to give you three descriptions of the sword or the word working here. Three descriptions. First, the sword often deepens unbelief. The sword often deepens unbelief. Look at verse 5. Baldness has come upon Gaza. This is a, uh, it's understood as a mourning, uh, mourning thing. So they would literally cut their hair off when they were mourning. Now, some people argue that it's the land, that the land has been stripped of everything. I think it's more appropriate as we see the second part of verse 5. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? It shows us that their practices, these practices, were tied to their false religion. It was tied to their false god. The immediate application for us is there are people who are living under the assumption of salvation rather than the assurance of saving faith. Do you see what the word does? As it works, it pushes people who don't believe oftentimes further in their unbelief. You, you could put it in the New Testament terms of hardened. Hardens them towards sin. It hardens them against God, against the gospel. But for those who are being saved, it draws them in as the word is working. You look at these practices and, and maybe there is some way that we can make some application. These practices of grief, of mourning, shaving their heads and then gashing yourselves. Uh, you recall the days of Elijah when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he 
He challenged the prophets of Baal. <clears throat> By the way, uh, Dagon is uh, related to Baal, for what it's worth. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. And do you remember what they did? They, they tried to call down Baal to consume the altar that they had filled with sacrifices. They did their best. It says they did it all day. And they even got to the point of cutting themselves, trying to conjure this false god. And maybe you're aware that there is a, a bit of a trend, and it grieves me, but there is a bit of a trend in our day of similar activity among especially young people. And I just want to speak to you, young people, if you are in any way tempted to harm yourself, to deal with your problems, please, please do not go that way. It is not the way of faith. It is not the way of God. And it certainly will not bring the lasting relief that you hope it will. Self-harm rises from the deceptive lies of the enemy. Rather than turning to God, they literally cut themselves and cut themselves and cut themselves. This is their desperate situation in this text. Do not be deceived. The sword often deepens unbelief. Secondly, the sword never rests. The sword never rests. We get to this point in the text, verse 6. You can feel the, you can feel how, how tired. You can feel the, the prophet. Almost like assuming the position of the Philistines. Ah, sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, your sheath. Rest and be still. It's like the prophet, possibly even God, assumes the position of the Philistines, pleading for some relief. And we get that, don't we? We get that. We, we don't want people to undergo such intense and undying judgment, yet no amount of grief and lament will redirect God's wrathful vengeance. Again, commentator writes here, even if the whole world interceded for Philistia, it would be in vain. You recall what we said about Egypt, that they were a perpetual sacrifice, that this, this sword of God, the judgment of God, falls upon unbelievers, and it does not stop. It does not relent. It continues into Eternity. So why must it continue? Why can't the sword rest? Because the very nature of the God of justice and righteousness demands it. His nature, as the text says, charges the sword to go forth, chopping down everything that refuses to submit to his sovereign rule. 
the sword never rests. The sword often deepens unbelief. The sword never rests. Thirdly, finally, the sword fulfills God's purpose. You know, uh, we read texts like this and we automatically want to reason our way to something. You hear about this relentless, almost, commentators say this as well, it's almost like God's judgment is out of control. It's almost like it's rage at this point. And we read texts like this and we're uncomfortable because we need like the step one, two, three of why God did this and why it's okay and how we need to tell unbelievers that God is not just an out of, co- out of control, raging God. But we read texts like this and this certainly communicates right here and now the idea of being out of control. So we don't get to formulate God's wrath neatly into a box right here. There are plenty of passages that we can go to for that. This is not one of them. So today, let the tsunami of his wrath against sin so engulf you that you are left in terrifying wonder. Tremble at the sword of the Lord cutting down his enemies. You know, in the New Testament, there, there is the, the, the word of God that is said to be a sword, and that word is actually more like a, like a dagger. It's precise as it's working upon people, and that's not the case here. This is the sword, the kind of sword that strikes large, sweeping blows against entire nations through entire peoples. This is the sword that comes in wrath against anything that is in the way to slaughter it. It's the sword that says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's the sword that results in people, in demons, in Satan himself being thrown eternally into the lake of fire. It's this kind of sword. That's terrifying. And I want to hopefully give you the, the, the echo of redemption as we conclude. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Kyle and I were talking about this, and, and I don't know how to reason my way fully to understanding. But you know the only way that we could say that the, the sword is sheathed? is that it was sheathed upon Jesus drinking the full cup of God's wrath. But that doesn't do it. It, it, We can't comprehend that, right? We can't comprehend the depths of what happened when Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath. You know, some have mockingly blasphemed Jesus saying, well, all he had to do was spend a weekend in hell and then go free. But they fail to understand, maybe you fail to understand that for Jesus being free 
completely free of sin and infinite in his person to experience the infinite wrath of God because of the infinite offense against him due to our sin. For him, this infinite punishment, like, (laughs) you don't know what that's like. I don't know that experience for the infinite God-man to take infinite punishment. Do you know why it has to be this way? Because only the infinite one could fully pay for God's judgment against sin. The arrogant fool would think to judge the work of the eternal spotless son as being worthless and insignificant. It's only the one who recognizes Jesus for who he is that he can rightly assess what the gospel actually does. The only way the slaughter stops, the only way the sword rests, is that the infinite eternal son, Jesus Christ, fully satisfied the wrath of God. We can't quantify that. We can't measure that. I think it's interesting that some would come to the conclusion that ultimately the punishment was a weekend in hell. Do you really think that a weekend in hell would be a match for Jesus? In fact, I am of the camp, I guess you could say, I don't believe that Jesus actually went to hell to pay for sin. He took that penalty at the cross. He took that penalty at the cross. The full wrath of God. You know what he said to the guy on the cross next to him? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. To know that the eternal son was forsaken by the father, yet at the very same time, perfectly obedient to his will. This is, this is too great. And in that work on the cross, you know what he defeated? He defeated hell. He defeated Satan. He defeated demons. He defeated your sinful flesh. He defeated the grave. And we know that because on that third day, he rose again. Proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and that for all who repent and believe, the sword, that wrath that was due to you, It turned upon him. I hope you're encouraged even from such a faint hint of redemption here in Jeremiah 47. Amid the announcements of God's judgment, redemption echoes. What a deep, deep pit we find ourselves in as sinful human beings, yet what a great, great 
salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Let this result in your thanksgiving and praise to God as he is the one who devised this wondrous working of your salvation. And for those of you who have not repented and believed, today, today is the day. Have the full assurance of faith in Jesus Christ before you walk out the doors today. When we respond, though I'm up here, I am glad to counsel with you or pray with you. Kyle is well available. Let's respond by the Spirit's leading. Father, it's as though we, we read these verses and we sort of stumble around and we can't put words together to define what just happened. We can't sufficiently process all that your judgment does and all that it will do. Here's what we know. You have told us very clearly that your son was judged on our behalf. And so let us fall on him in faith. Let us fall on him in faith. Even in the face of all the things that we can't quantify. All the things that we can't tidy up in a, a neat formula. Let us fall on Jesus in faith, Father. For those that need him, that they would be saved today. For those that need restoration today. Those who have allowed the things of the world to bleed over into their lives. God, help them today by the Spirit's working to remove those things. To be further sanctified today. To look more like Jesus, we pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen. And now if you